blessed to be a blessing. Last week we started this worship series uh, focusing on the story of Abraham and Sarah. That's the way they're best known. Although at the point in the story where we're encountering them now, they are Abram and Sarai. It's a few chapters later in Genesis where we encounter the part of the story where God says, how about you think about changing your name from Abram to Abraham and from Sarai to Sarah as a reflection of this new relationship that we're establishing with one another. This is something that happens now and then in the Bible. Um, God invites someone to change their name because they're kind of transforming into a new person in a new relationship with God. So Abram and Sarai, as we um, encounter these folks, these, this story, we're traveling back in time 4,000 years. So imagine, if you will, this giant timeline, and from 2012 to about the year zero, 2,000 years, that's between us and the birth of Jesus, right? Approximately. And then 2,000 years before that, so an equal length of time before that, to Abram and Sarai. Last week, uh, Sarah read from the 12th chapter of Genesis. Now, if we were tracing our family tree, the 12th chapter of Genesis takes us all the way to the very bottom of the trunk. Actually, it takes us into the roots, if you will. The very roots of our Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, our Jewish brothers and sisters and Christians, and actually our Muslim brothers and sisters as well, all trace our roots back to this story, the story of Abraham and Sarah. So last week when we met Abram and Sarai, Abraham, Abram was 75 years old. And I'm just wondering if there's anyone in the room who's 75. Yeah. But I, know, I know there are people who are older than 75. Is anyone here exactly 75? Okay, if you're willing to admit your age, <laughs> who in the room is closest to 75? I'm going to be 73 in August. All right, Dell, for the sake of argument, you're our guy. <laughs> but thank you for your willingness to, to put yourself out there. 73 is, 73 is a new 53, right? And that's what I mean. <laughs> so, Dell's our guy. We're going to keep that in mind. At the age of 75, God said, not God wasn't 75, Abram was 75. God said to Abram and Sarai, hey, leave your country, leave your homeland, leave your father's house, just leave it all behind because I have new adventures for you. I want to take you on a little journey, and here's the catch. I'm not telling you where you're going. I have a place in mind for you. I have a promised land. But you just have to trust me on this one and follow where I'm leading you. And I'll let you know along the way the right directions. How many of you would be willing to say, pick me, pick me for that Ermel? Hey, all right. Because you're ready for an adventure, right? So here's the adventurous ones in the room. But this isn't just a little trip. This is pack your U-Haul and let's go. Um, we don't know a lot about that story, actually. Last week, Sarah shared this map with us. Let's see if I can find this map. Um, so here's the Mediterranean Sea, just to kind of put it in, um, in perspective. They started up here in Haran, and God led them down here to Canaan. That's a long journey, especially if you're traveling by foot. And guess how much Genesis tells us about that story? Nothing. 
zero. It goes from the point of leaving, and the next verse says, when they arrived, I'm sure one or two things happened along that journey, right? But we don't know any of those details. When they arrived, so they arrived in Canaan. This was the land that God had promised to them. And then they were there for a time when there was a, anybody remember? A famine. And there was nothing to eat, and there was no water to drink. And so they left that land, and they traveled on to Egypt. It was in Egypt that Abram had a brilliant plan. This is what Sarah talked about last week. Abram was a little concerned. What was his primary concern? Who remembers? What's that? Staying alive. Staying alive. Actually, that was his primary concern. What I was thinking about was his wife was too beautiful. <laughs> but really, his concern was staying alive because his, he was afraid that because Sarai was so beautiful that the Egyptians would kill him to take her as a wife. And this wasn't an unheard of practice, so it wasn't a totally irrational fear. <coughs> yeah, I remember that in this day, it's hard to... We're, we're sort of mixing cultures here. In this day, a woman was literally the possession of her husband. Thank God, marriage has come a long way. And when we talk about biblical marriage, we have to remember that there's more than one version of biblical marriage, and the primary one was wife, possession of husband. It's kind of hard to it suggests that we have to reclaim that one, don't you think? Anyway, I digress. <laughs> and that wasn't the topic of my sermon. <laughs> so he's concerned, and the brilliant plan that he comes up with is this one. How about if we just tell them that you are my sister? And then they'll let me live. Well, that's great, right? Except it's kind of deceptive. And exactly what they afraid, were afraid would happen is what happened. Pharaoh said, she is the most beautiful woman alive. And hopefully there was more to it than just her outer beauty. And he, he took Sarai to be his wife. Probably had more than one wife, too. But that's another model, biblical model of marriage. <laughs> um, so it's a great deal, right? Abraham gets to live. Abram gets to live. And also, he got wealthy from that. He was given cattle and all kinds of gold and silver and all kinds of things. Except there's one little problem. Actually, there's two problems. The first problem is, Abraham, you just gave your wife away to another man. And the second problem is, we have no idea what Sarah thought about this whole plan, right? That's not recorded in the book of Genesis. What did Sarah think about this idea? Well, everything went as planned for a time until the Pharaoh learned that Sarai was actually the wife of Abram. And Pharaoh wasn't too excited about this, right? And I suppose he could have ordered to have Abram executed so that he could keep Sarai. But instead, what does he say? Go. Just get out of here. I never want to see you again. On your way, go. And the uh, message that Sarah... Um, shared with us last week was that in this story Abram really is compelled by fear it's his fear that sort of gets in the way and Sarah suggested for us last week that when we are controlled by our fear and we fail to put our trust into God all kinds of bad things can happen right? and all, and all kinds of people can suffer 
We don't know what might have happened if Abram had simply trusted that God had to back. We don't know what would have happened, how the story might have been different. But it's an interesting challenge for us to think about how we turn our fear into prayer and how we turn our fear into trust in God. So if last week's word was fear, today's word, it, word is skepticism. We're exploring this story a little bit at a time um, through the lens of these different words. Uh, skepticism, today's word. So this story of uh, Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, really takes up a good portion of Genesis. We first encountered them in chapter 12, where Sarah read last week. And actually, their story is the rest of the book of Genesis, which is a whole lot of chapters, and their descendants, Isaac, and on through the generations. Um, biblical scholars say that everything in Genesis before this story, chapters 1 through 11, is what's called prehistory. That's when we hear the stories of the creation of the universe, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Noah, Noah's Ark, uh, the Tower of Babel. That's all what biblical scholars call prehistory. Um, those are stories that are important for kind of establishing the relationship with, between God and humanity. But it's here at this story of Abram and Sarai that we really encounter the history, the roots of our Judeo-Christian tradition um, moving forward. So, we are focusing these weeks on chapters 12 through 21 of Genesis, and we're really galloping quickly through them. I'm going to share a few words from chapters 13 and 15 today. So, Abram left Egypt. Remember, he left because Pharaoh said, get lost, buddy. Left Egypt and went back to, up, back to the Negev, he and his wife and everything he owned, and Lot mentioned Lot. Lot's their nephew, who's traveling with them, uh, still with him. By now, Abram was very rich, loaded with cattle and silver and gold. He moved on from the Negev, camping along the way to Bethel, the place he had first set up his tent between Bethel and Pi, and built his first altar. There, Abram prayed to God. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit here. What happens next in the story is that Abram and Sarai and Lot and all the people traveling with them, they each have sort of their own entourage of cattle hands and all their livestock. And they're all traveling. Imagine these two groups traveling together. And they start to quarrel with one another. They start to, they're not getting along. Imagine everybody packed in a station wagon when you were kids. It's kind of that dynamic. And so they decide that they're going to kind of go their separate ways. They're all still traveling back to Canaan, but they're going to kind of take different routes you go that way, we'll go this way, we'll all get along better. And that's how, they, um, that's how they continue. After Lot separated from Abram, God said, Open your eyes, Abram, look around, look north, look south, look east and west. Everything you see, the whole land spread out before you, I will give to you and your children forever. I'll make your descendants like dust. Counting your descendants will be as impossible as counting the dust of the earth. Have you ever tried to count dust? <laughs> the next time you're dusting, just for the fun, try counting the pieces of dust. And let me know how you do that. <clears throat> so on your feet, get moving. Walk through the country, its length and breadth. I'm giving it all to you. Abram moved his tent. He went and settled by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron. There he built an altar to God. Then I'm going to skip a little bit. I'm going to skip all of chapter 14. You can read that in your own time. I encourage you to do that. Chapter 15. 
After all these things, the word of God came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be grand. Abram said, God, master, what use are your gifts as long as I'm childless? And Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit everything. Abram continued, see, you've given me no children. And now a mere house servant is going to get it all. So I'm going to stop there for a second. The ancient... um, Tradition, Near Eastern tradition, was that if you were childless and you died, your servant would become your heir. In other words, your servant would begin to function like a son and would inherit everything that you had, and your actually family line would continue through the line of your servant. So remember, Abram is how old? 75, and Sarai is about the same age. They do not expect to be having any children. Are you expecting to have any children? I'm just curious. No. Okay. <laughs> so Abram says, what are you talking about this dust stuff and descendants? Like, we don't even have any children. And what good is it if our servant, Eliezer, is, is our heir anyway? And God says, don't worry. He won't be your heir. A son from your own body will be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, look at the sky. Count the stars. Can you do it? Count your descendants. You're going to have a big family, Abram. And he believed. Abram believed. Believed God. God declared him set right with God. So how about that story? The amazing thing is that Abram believes all this because this is a pretty um, tall promise here that God is making. Well, before we dig into that story, uh, a little bit. I wanted to share a little story of my own. So it was Wednesday of Holy Week this past year, four days this year, the four days before Easter, and I got a phone call. Actually, Liz took the phone call, and it was a colleague calling from the Bangor area, who was wondering if either Sarah or I would provide some pastoral care for a young family from who are loosely connected with her church, who are here at Maine Medical Center, and um, needed some care. It seemed that this young couple. Uh, were expecting a baby. They were six, six months along in the pregnancy, and it was unlikely that the baby was going to survive. In fact, the only hope for the baby to survive was that they performed emergency surgery and hoped that outside of the womb they could begin the necessary interventions to give this baby life. That's a pretty hard situation to deal with, right? So you can imagine what's going through my mind. I've not met this couple, and who knows what's coming. Um, so my first thought was, my first impulse was really compassion. I can't even imagine, as the father of two young daughters, like what goes through your mind in that kind of situation. My second thought, I confess, followed closely behind the first, was it's Holy Week. <laughs> Sarah and I had just that morning made a list of all the things we had to do between Wednesday and Sunday, and it was a long list, and we were feeling a little overwhelmed that, to get everything ready for all the different events of that week. Um, but when you're a pastor, those kinds of situations take top priority over anything else on your list, right? So we had a little discussion about who was going to kind of take responsibility for this care situation, and since Sarah had some... Uh, appointments and other things on her calendar that would be difficult to, to juggle around, um, I kind of set some things aside and agreed to go to the hospital. And it felt, as I was thinking about it, 
this pastor that called was hoping that after the surgery we could go and and provide some care. And I was thinking about that, like that would be kind of awkward to walk in after the surgery and then introduce myself, never met. So I thought, well, maybe it would be better if I went in the morning beforehand. Probably that's when they really need the care and someone to pray with them and talk them through what was coming up. So I went to the hospital. And man, when you're walking into a situation like that, I kind of feel right now the way I felt in that moment. My prayer was, Gosh, God, I have no idea what to say or do in this situation. Um, actually, my prayer was, make me just shut up so that I can just be present with these people because anything I say is not going to be the right thing. So, <clears throat> actually, my prayer was, God, may my presence in this situation just be one little tiny reminder of your presence in this situation. It's kind of offering myself up to be a vehicle of hope or healing or whatever it was that this couple needed in that situation. When I got to the hospital, the door of their room was closed and they were meeting with a, a doctor, so the nurse asked me to wait in a little waiting area, which I did. I waited in that area and I called Sarah and I prayed. And, and then the, um, the husband came out to, to get me. Now, when this colleague had called me, she said, the husband will be much more open to the visit of a pastor than the wife. Um, he actually was longing for a pastor or someone to come and pray with them. And she was angry. And who wouldn't be in that situation, right? She wasn't sure she wanted a pastor in the room. This is devastating. So I talked with the husband for a little while. And then he took me in to meet the wife. And I'm praying as I'm going in. And when I walk in the room, this woman looked at me and she said, did you used to be a high school English teacher? <laughs> I said, yes. She said, did you teach at Bangor High School? I said, yes. I taught there one year, in 1993. She said, you were my freshman English teacher. <laughs> but do you know what happened in that moment? Instant connection. Instant trust. That was incredible. Incredibly humbling. Incredibly humbling. I cannot explain how all that stuff works. But I had this feeling that God was doing some orchestrating behind the scenes to make that happen. I cannot explain it theologically or philosophically or in any other category I can come up with except to say that it was sacred and it was holy and they knew it and I knew it. It was profound. So we spent some time talking and praying together. And it was very complicated from there. The surgery was on, it was off, it was on, it was off, phone calls. But um, in the end, the baby was born alive. And they had one sacred hour together. And then the baby slipped away into God's loving arms. And I was able to spend some time with them after all that happened as well, and to pray with them listen and be present. <clears throat> this past week, actually, I had an email from them, the first contact I've had with them since Good Friday, just saying, you know, we're doing okay, and thank you for being there for us, and hope our paths will cross again. I tell you what, when I think about that, that feels like a divine appointment. Do you know what I mean? A divine appointment. And it was not about me 
like, I feel like God chose me because of this experience that we had. I didn't even remember this young woman, to be honest. But this experience we had that opened up doors and opened up hearts for a connection, which is what they needed. It wasn't about me. It was this idea of being blessed to be a blessing. You see? So I wonder if there are situations from your own life like that that you can recall when you were tapped for a divine appointment. Maybe you couldn't even make sense of it rationally, but you just had this feeling that you couldn't explain, but you knew it in your gut, and you followed your heart, or you did the thing that you were convinced that God was calling you to do in that moment. Maybe you can think about times when you totally missed it. Because I think that there are lots of divine appointments, and most of them we miss. But once in a while, once in a while we're paying attention, and we're listening, right? And we trust, and we go with it. And it's holy, and it's sacred. Back to Abram and Sarai for a minute. God's making some pretty big, unbelievable promises here. Leave your country, leave your homeland. I'm going to show you the way. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I, I know you don't have any kids right now. But I'm going to give you lots and lots of descendants. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay, that's a pretty big promise. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Imagine God saying that to you. Divine appointment. In today's reading, that promise becomes even more unbelievable. Because God says, you see the dust there? This is the dust of the earth. Just try to count the pieces, Abram. Get down on your knees and start counting. As many pieces of dust as there are, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And then later, God says, look up. Do you see those stars? Start counting, Abram. Start counting. Because as many stars as there are up there, that's how many descendants you will have. You are going to have a big family. Let's talk about stars for a minute. Whoops. <laughs> stars. How many stars do you think you can count or see with the naked eye from standing in any one place in, on the earth and looking up on a clear night? How many stars do you think you can see? Portland 2. <laughs> exactly. But put yourself at Moosehead Lake instead of Portland. Astronomers say from any one place on a clear night, if there's not a lot of ambient light, you can see somewhere around 2,500 stars. That's quite a few. But that is just nothing compared to how many stars there are. Astronomers say there are probably five to 8,000 stars that are actually visible to the naked eye. You can't see them all standing in one place, but there are five to 8,000 stars that you can see with the naked eye. How many stars do you think there are in the Milky Way galaxy? Someone give me a guess. Just throw out a number. Matt, you're good at things like that. What do you think? 
I would guess somewhere in the 100 million plus range. 100 million? Yeah, plus. <laughs> Six trillion. 200 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. We don't even know how many galaxies there are, right? 200 to 400 billion, that's a lot of zeros, just keep writing zeros, in the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, so I was thinking about that number, and I was thinking, we can't even conceive of that number. So I did a little research. How many grains of salt do you think there are in a one-pound carton of salt. I counted them. No, just kidding. I went online to the Morton Salt website. They actually have, they actually have a lot of FAQs on there, and they say that in one pound of Morton Salt, get this right, there are 10 million grains of salt in one one pound card. Ten million. Do they count the words? I'm sure they do. All of the Morton elves count the salt. They make sure they have the right amount in there. I don't know how they calculated that. It's probably a machine. Some machine, yeah. So then I decided to do a little math. If you're going to translate stars into salt, how many cartons of Morton salt would we have to have to equal that 200 to 400 billion? So I decided to average that, because that's quite a range, right? 200 to 400 billion, that's quite a range. So I decided to average that and go with 300 billion. Guess how many cartons of salt you would need to equal that 300 billion stars? Matt? <laughs> 30,000. What? 30,000 cartons of salt to equal the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, someone try putting that in your, your uh, card at Hanford this week. <laughs> 30,000 cartons of salt, and let me know how that goes. We are talking about large numbers here. That's a lot of family. And you're moving. <laughs> and you're moving, yes. <laughs> and you better start stocking up on diapers here, too. Right. <laughs> I don't, think, I don't think God was talking about specific numbers here, but what God is saying is, this is an innumerable count that we're talking about here. We're talking about an unfathomable number. This is an enormous promise that God is making. And Abram is, not surprisingly, a bit skeptical, right? Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be a little skeptical? Abram is like, what are you talking about? All I have here is Eliezer, my servant. Um, how's this going to happen? And God says, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about Eliezer. I'm talking about you. Guess what? Start stocking up on that. So listen to what they do, though, when they get this news. The first thing they do is they worship God. All through this story... We hear this line again and again. And there Abram built an altar to the Lord. And there Abram prayed. Over and over. See, even in the midst of their uncertainty, their fear, their skepticism and everything else, they stop and they pray. This is about relationship with God. They have more questions than they have answers. But the questions do not get in the way of their relationship. The questions drive them to their knees. They worship God together. They practice their faith even in the midst of doubt. That's important, right? Because we all have questions. 
And the questions need not push us away. The questions like to draw us nearer to the heart of God. Number two, they listen. And we know they listen. Because if they hadn't listened, then they would never have heard. And if they hadn't heard, then we would not be reading these words in our scripture 4,000 years later. They listened. Several, years ago, several weeks ago, when we celebrated Pentecost, I said, you cannot do the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's loving presence surrounding us every moment of every day and often whispering in our ears or to our hearts if we're paying attention. I don't know about your faith life, if you've ever heard God speak with your ears, but I have not. I've not heard God speak with my ears, but when you're paying attention, God speaks to the heart. This is discernment. We need to be listening. Where is the voice of God speaking in our lives? And what is it that God is calling us to do? Abram and Sarai listen. And then thirdly, they trust. Even in their fear, even in their confusion, even in their uncertainty, they trust. We read today, and Abram believed. He believed God, and God declared him set right with God. This belief is more than just intellectual assent to some good ideas. This is not believing with his head. This is believing with his heart and believing with his feet. This is trust. This is a posture that he takes and says, God, I have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounds good to me. I'll go along for the ride. I'm up for it. If that's what you say, I am <coughs> up for it. I surrender my will to your will. I put myself in your hands. That is trust, isn't it? And then finally, they obey. They're willing to go where God sends them. They put, keep putting one foot in front of the other, even though they have no roadmap, they have no idea what is coming for them, how they're going to get there, or, or what this means for their future. But they're willing to keep, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's not just, you know, well that sounds like a good plan. This is actually stepping out in faith, taking a risk, and doing what they feel called to do. So they head on for parts unknown, and they stop at Babies R Us along the way, right? <laughs> How often do we get stuck thinking that our current reality is the only reality that's possible? How often do we get stuck in the muck and the mire, and we think that the only possible the only reality that's possible is the current reality. God says no. No, 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 no. I have other ideas in mind. And if we worship, that is, practice our faith and listen and trust and obey, God can lead us in places where we never could have imagined. Do you know that's true? Have you experienced that in your own life? We say, no, 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 no. This is the only thing that's possible. And God says, no, no, no. For me, all things are possible, right? We read those words in scripture. For God, all things are possible. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, we encounter this definition of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1. It's a definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It isn't that seeing is believing, See, no, it's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. Faith is conviction that the things you can't see yet are actually true. 
conviction of things hoped for, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what is it you hope for? What is it that you can't see yet? Those are things to spend time in God with God in prayer about. I don't know exactly what this means in your life. I don't know what situation it is where you're maybe stuck or feeling like, what's next? I want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer about those things. Practice faith. Build an altar to the Lord and pray. Listen. That is discernment. And maybe you need some help because sometimes it's hard to do this solo. So find someone that you trust, that you know is spiritually grounded, and spend some time listening together and, and, and talking together about that. Trust and then obey. I want to invite you to spend some time in prayer about that this week. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. It's called Faith While Trees Are Still in Blossom. Faith While Trees Are Still in Blossom. Now think about this for a minute. When the apple tree has blossoms on it, do you start making plans for applesauce right then? Yes. Because even though there's no apples on that tree, the blossoms inspire the faith that you know there are apples coming, right? You can't see it yet, but you trust that there are apples coming. Faith while trees are still in blossom plans the picking of the fruit. That's the words of this song. Faith can feel the thrill of harvest when the buds begin to sprout. How many of you have planted a garden? Anybody plant a garden? You have some things starting to grow? Are you imagining the squash and the cucumbers? And the tomato? Are you planning to make spaghetti sauce yet? Right? There aren't even probably blossoms on your tomato plants yet. Long before the dawn is breaking, faith anticipates the sun. Think about the pitch dark of night. Does, the faith, does your faith anticipate the sun? Faith is eager for the daylight, for the work that must be done. Oops, Long before the rains were coming, Noah built an ark, right? He didn't wait till it, till it started to flood. He built the ark. And Abram set out on a journey without knowing where he was going. So let's sing together as we celebrate that faith that invites us to action, to trust, and to obey.